for that. So let's thank him uh, and ask him uh, to be with us now. Our list of things to say thank you for is, is always inadequate. I suspect for everything we say thank you, there are a hundred things that we're not even noticing. And yet, your love for us is, uh, doesn't skip a beat. Uh, you, you, you are still committed to us no matter what, Father. So may your name be hallowed right now. May you bless us with ears to hear and, with, and me with words to speak. For Jesus' sake, amen. We are in the book of Philippians. We are in chapter 1. We are going slow through Philippians because there's so much there. And uh, if you're just joining us and not familiar with this book, I, I think it'll be okay. I'll just try to just drop you right in there with the main idea, and, and I, I think you'll, you'll catch up just fine. But maybe as a way to set the stage, <clears throat> I want you to imagine that um, it's February. It's the middle of February, and uh, we're in the midst of a six to ten inch snowstorm. I realize some of you, uh, that's a nightmare. Uh, so you don't want to imagine it, but just hang in there. I want you to imagine now uh, the perspective of someone who's retired, at home, healthy, uh, the perspective of a, of a kid where school just got closed, the perspective of a parent whose kid is now home, uh, the perspective of a commuter who has a significant amount of commuting distance, and the perspective of a highway worker. Same event, lots of different perspectives, right? Lots of difference in reactions to that event. Lots of different interpretations to that event. And I, I want to use that to, to throw out a suggestion to you that uh, so much of our responses to life are based on how we interpret our circumstances. Meaning it's not really our circumstances that are the issue. It is our interpretation of those circumstances. And I want to offer to you a way today uh, to interpret your circumstances in Christ if you belong to him. In fact, I'm not going to offer that. This guy who wrote this letter, Paul, is going to uh, offer that. <clears throat> and in fact, if we're going to look at this little verse here, verse 12 through um, 18 today in chapter 1. But it's not just an unwanted circumstances, that's what this chapter's uh, section's about. But interestingly, and we're going to get there eventually, I don't know when, but I would think it'll be sometime in 23, chapter 4, uh, in chapter 4, verse 11, it's not just the unwanted circumstances of life that we have to interpret that way, it's even the incredibly great circumstances of life. So he says, in verse 11 of chapter 4, now, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he tells us what situations, not only the situations that bring me low, but even the ones where I abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Uh, we don't realize it, but there's actually a secret you need to learn in abundance that's just as important as the one in need. And, I, and I, we're going to get a good look at that uh, this morning here in 12 through 18. I have said that I, I think one of the definitions for joy, which is what this letter is about, is the idea of contented anticipation. 
The ability to live in a certain situation, whether it be abundance or or need, with contentment and forward-looking anticipation. And that's what we're going to see play out here as well. But just an outline in in chapter 1, 12 through 26, uh, Paul is going to talk about how he responds to unwanted circumstances. And then in verse uh, 27 on, he's going to tell the Philippians, now that's how I respond Now, this is how you should likewise respond to your unwanted circumstances. So he's pretty much modeling that for us. And surprise, surprise, what looks so bad turns out to serve what's so right. And that's, by the way, over and over and over again in the Bible. What looks so bad and actually is bad turns out to serve what is so right. And it starts right off in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Already, Paul is making a profound contrast here. If you want to just look at life through me, it's not so good. But if you want to look at life through the gospel, then that changes how I look at me. That really sets us up right away in this contrast of verse 12. And then in 13 through 17, he basically gives three examples of how his bad circumstances have wound up advancing what's good, the gospel. First of all, he has made Christ conversational. Verse 13, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, there's a couple debates here of who this imperial guard is, and I'd love to impress you how I I know about the two different camps here, and I've thought through uh, which one's right, and I'll I'll outline that for you, but I didn't go that far because the outcome's the same no matter who, so I don't know why we even necessarily go there. But So anyway, there's just a lot of these important people that are probably not Christians who are hearing about the gospel, and... The point of it is that Paul is not just another Roman prisoner. I mean, there were, there were thousands and thousands of them. But for some reason, these important guards are talking about this obscure, unknown prisoner because of what he's associated with. Paul is associated with this bizarre, cult-like group that, believe it or not, worships another Roman criminal that was crucified. I mean, that's just ridiculous if you try to get into their sandals. Um, And not only that, not only do they worship this prisoner, this criminal, they actually think he's resurrected physically from the grave. Add that to that. And then, get this, he's not just resurrected. But, oh man, we're on dangerous ground now. They are calling him Kyrios. That's not Kyrios. Kyrios, a Greek word which means Lord, which was reserved publicly for only one figure, the Roman emperor. No wonder they're talking about Paul. So Paul's being made, uh, he's making Christ conversational among all of these people. Which, by the way, just reminds me that Christianity at its best, is always subversive to the normal order of life. No wonder Jesus said we'd be hated. Uh, in fact, maybe we should wonder what sometimes, now think about what you're hating. Never mind. Stop it. Okay, I'm going off on a rabbit trail. <laughs> All right. He made Christ conversational, but he's also 
uh, made Christ, in the next verse, fearlessly communicated. Some of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But he's also not only made Christ fearlessly communicated among um, the brothers, the sympathizers, but also among the competitors in verse um, 15. Some indeed, uh, or sorry, verse, verse 14, most of the brothers, oh yeah, 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill, referring back to the group in verse 14, the latter do it out of love, that's the group in 14, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, but 17, this is back to the people who do it out of envy and rivalry, this is a common literary pattern where you go back and forth, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, there is some importance and difficulty in trying to figure out who are these people that are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. Uh, I don't think they are the false teachers that Paul is going to come out and condemn in chapter 3. It wouldn't really make sense that they'd be proclaiming Christ. Uh, I think instead what these are are believers whose type of preaching and who are also in a competitive contest with Paul in some ways. You know, they're out... Uh, they're out getting converts as well. Paul wasn't the only one planning Christian churches. He wasn't the only one, get, only one getting uh, believers together. And I think the best way to put this uh, is how someone else has put it. Uh, a guy's name who you'll hear periodically, but you won't remember it because it's kind of a weird name. But because I said that, you might remember it more. Here it is. Moisha Silva. Uh, Moisha Silva has written one of the better commentaries on Philippians. And he basically says, what's going on here is that men and women are being saved. And for that, Paul's rejoicing. Doesn't matter how or who or what their motives are. Paul is rejoicing that people are actually being saved and believing in the true Jesus Christ. However, the evangelistic success, get it out, was being used by some to subvert the apostles' authority. And as a result, these believers that were being converted were being vulnerable to the false teachers that you'll hear about in chapter 3. So in their competitiveness with Paul, they were actually creating these much more vulnerable believers to uh, a kind of false uh, Christianity. And the reason, again, I think that they were believers is that you'll even notice here, um, he'll say, verse 14 uh, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord. And then in verse 15, some of those brothers, meaning a subset of verse 14, are doing it out of envy and rivalry. And so here's just one moment I want to pause and give kind of an, a, a, an application here. It's difficult sometimes to tell the difference between Christ's proclaimers and Christ's distorters. Uh, the dis Christ's distorters, chapter 3, we'll talk about that. These are Christ's proclaimers here. And um, we have a long history of uh, people who have distorted Christ, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Joel Osteen types of the health and wealth uh, gospel. Uh, but that's very, and even some of the uh, liberal mainline churches where Jesus is no longer the way, but he's a way and whatever kind of Jesus you design is okay. Uh, that's in a bit of a contrast, to say the least, between what I would call our distant cousins. That would be uh, 
Roman Catholics, Orthodox, that are still um, uh, still uh, consistent in their main uh, traditional beliefs. Some of the strict Baptists, like the King James Version people only, aren't necessarily false teachers. They're just distant cousins. Um, some of the mainline denominations are still uh, they still have lots of people proclaiming Christ in them, even though some of those denominations have become more liberal. And for us, it means that as we're thinking about all of these different Christ types out there, are we rejoicing in those who are really still preaching the true Christ, uh, despite how they're doing it, why they're doing it? Uh, or are we sometimes rejecting our very own distant cousins not because what they're teaching is so diabolic, but because we have envy and rivalry in our heart. Now, lest you think this is just uh, me making too much of this, this is an age-long problem in the church. It started with a couple guys that I'm going to point out to you in Luke chapter 9. Maybe some of you who know your Bible super well are already there and thinking, I bet I know what he's going to uh, remind us of. It comes in Luke chapter 9. Uh, verse 49, and here's Jesus going along, and uh, one of the disciples named John says, um, you know, Master, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Well, seems reasonable. Then Jesus says something that leaves the barn door so wide open it scares most of us. Don't stop him. For the one who's not against you is for you. Sometimes you just wish, could you have given us maybe three or four more lines so we can... And then it goes on, when the, day draws, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, uh, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, these guys are now really learning how to exercise faith. I mean, this is really awesome. And I, there's part of me that just thinks, I can just see Jesus rubbing his forehead at this moment. He turned and re rebuked them. And they went out onto another village. So this... This sense of we've got the truth and uh, we've got our six shooters ready for anybody else who doesn't cross their T's like, like I do uh, has been a problem for the church. Uh, in the late 70s, um, or no, I guess it was uh, more like the late 80s, when the, when the um, charismatics and the non-charismatics began to have their competition. I remember reading a book by a guy that I uh, thought was the 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 best guy on the planet. I mean, he could do no wrong. His name was John MacArthur. He, uh, he just, everything he, he put out, I just thought was uh, God's word to man, probably. Um, and he wrote a book on the charismatics, and I thought, I got all my weapons in place now. I'm going to take them down. And uh, some of the things he said in there were great. But about five, six, eight years later, I reread that book, and I thought, wow, this was off. This was off in so many ways. And I just couldn't see it at the time. And I began to realize these are the people we should be rejoicing in. Yeah, we don't agree. There's some differences here. But what can we rejoice in in the charismatic movement as opposed to their threat to us when they really never were? 
And the same thing happens in um, big churches. Uh, every single place I've moved from, uh, there has been a big church that has sprung up almost overnight and it has vacuumed out of these other churches like a Walmart coming into a mom and pop store. So many other Christians have left these other churches just floundering. You know, it's really easy to just find all the things wrong with big churches. Um, but I got to tell you one that you're going to find humorous. Uh, it happens. Uh, can I just tell you a little church history story? It'll only take a couple minutes. Um, <clears throat> this has been going on for a while, this sort of fight between um, proclaimers. And it, if we go back to the, the mid-1800s, there was this guy named Peter Cartwright. He was with the Methodist Church. He was a circuit writer. And by the way, regardless of what you think about the Methodist, the Methodist saved America in terms of being, uh, having a Christian influence. Uh, in less than a generation, probably more like 30 years, the Methodist, who represented 2% of, of the population in America, wound up be, uh, they wound up becoming the number one denomination in America in less than 30 years because of these circuit riders who, when, when the frontier opened up, the place you and I live right now called the Midwest, when it opened up and all of these, these uh, clustered uh, uh, people in New England decided to scatter, the church chased after them in the form of the Methodist mostly and the Baptist as a close second. And so Peter Cartwright is a Methodist circuit rider uh, who, by the way, also happened to run against uh, another guy from Illinois uh, who had lost several times. Uh, he, he ran against him for Congress. His name was Abraham. There's a fascinating exchange between the two of them. But here's a little episode from his biography. <clears throat> there were great many Baptists in the bounds of our circuits. The Baptists were numerous and wealthy, and in some circuits, a great many of the citizens were under Baptist influence. One such circuit was quite large, taking near four weeks to complete. A revival broke out in many neighborhoods, and scores of souls were converted to God and joined the Methodist Episcopal Church. But there was also considerable persecution. After a recent meeting, I started on my circuit round, and all of the Baptist preachers had left this place without preaching in it for years. Yet in a few days after I was gone, there were sent on appointments for the next Sabbath three of the Baptist preachers. And they came on, and all three preached as, the, as was their custom. And they all opened with a cry of, Water, water! You must follow the Lord down into the water. Now an old exhorter took over my circuit, and I hurried back to these new converts. Oh, how I felt. I was afraid that some of my young converts would break from the way, and the rest would then follow, and so I would lose all my converts. About the time the Baptist ministers were done giving the right hand of fellowship and rejoicing over my stolen children, a thought struck my mind very forcibly to give in my experience and act as though I intended to join the Baptist church. It may be that I can yet save them. I rose up, I gave in my experience, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, and then there was great rejoicing over the Methodist preaching boy. At, a, at about the appointed hour, we all met at the creek, but I took no change of apparel. I had been baptized, and I did not intend to cancel my baptism. And by the way, if you're not familiar, the Baptist baptized infants, they sprinkle them. The Baptist only baptized adult believers, or at least believers. So, all right, that's the case. <clears throat> so, accordingly, I stepped forward and I said to Brother M, I wish to join the Baptist church if I can come in with a good conscience. I've been baptized and my conscience is perfectly satisfied with it. And I cannot submit to be rebaptized. 
Can I come into your church on these terms? The position I occupied startled the preacher. (laughs) Was it done by sprinkling, was the reply. Yes, sir. Well, that is no baptism at all. The church has heard my experience, this is Cartwright speaking now, and pronounced it good, and you believe that I'm a Christian and cannot fall away so as to be finally lost. Well, what am I to do? Are are you going to keep me out of the church, bleeding around the walls like a lost sheep in a gang by myself? Brother S, standing next to Brother M, replied, Brother M, are you going to keep Brother Cartwright out of the church? I cannot receive him, said Brother M. Well, said Brother S., if Brother Cartwright, who has been the means in the hands of God of my conversion and the saving of so many precious souls, cannot come into the church, I cannot and will not join it. Nor I, said his wife. And thus it went round and round until every one of my 23 young converts filed off and gathered around me. Envy and rivalry. It's been around for a while. And I think you can relate this outside of the church. I think there's an issue called comparison, whether it's co-workers, or the way parents compare with one another, the way marrieds compare to singles and vice versa, uh, the way that uh, siblings have rivalries that last well into their adult years, high school reunions, who decides to go and who doesn't, why do they decide to go, etc., etc. The point of all this is this. When my soul is caught up in the big story that's always winning, I could care less whether I am or not. That's really what he's getting at here in the way that Paul is taking his unwanted circumstances and seeing them in Christ and seeing them from a whole other angle that burst out joy in him. That's why if you look at 12 and 18, they're like bookends. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, which is bad, really has served to advance the gospel. So that in every way, whether pretense or truth, verse 18, Christ is proclaimed and that satisfies my soul at the end of the day. Which is why this idea of Christ is proclaimed is really what it means to... Uh, relook at our circumstances. Does, when we say Christ is proclaimed, like we do at communion, what we're saying is he's made more real. Through what's going on with me, Christ is being made more real. Or maybe another way to put it, because of what's happening to me and how I'm responding to that, Christ is make, being made less Uh, He's being made more and more unavoidable. That's the way to put it. It's like he's shining through in a way that's causing even the imperial guards to talk about it. Christ is being made more and more unavoidable. So in every unwanted situation, we should look for how the gospel might be advanced, how Christ is being proclaimed, or how Christ's ruling presence is being made more visible, how uh, our circumstances are being reinterpreted. In fact, in 2 Timothy, one of the last letters that we have from the Apostle Paul before he's executed, he says to to Timothy, who's scared and kind of retreating, he says to him in 2 Timothy 2.9, look, I am bound in chains right now. Once again, he's writing from jail. But you know what, Timothy? God's word is not in chains. He just changes his whole perspective. His life is so integrated with a big story 
that he's able to see what's excellent. That's, that's from last week, uh, Philippians 1.10, that we need to approve what is excellent. His life is so integrated with the big story, he, gets to, he keeps focused on what really matters, which is God and his kingdom promise. So that the ups and downs of Paul's life, even the things that are hard to accept, those things ultimately lose their power to interpret Paul's life for him because he's so wrapped up into this. Now, this is what I would call just, it's a practice, learning to look, learning to, learning to not accept your first interpretation of unwanted circumstances, not to trust your first interpretation of unwanted circumstances, and instead look and wonder, I wonder how God is advancing his cause in this situation. You may not always see it, but it's worth looking to it. And by the way, this is not pasting on a smile and becoming one of those obnoxious Christians who throw Christian cliches at you as though the the pain will just go away if I just tell you, hey, it's all going to work out for good. (laughs) That's not this at all. In fact, the very text itself. Remember how I was talking about how it goes back and forth uh, in verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. He's talking about uh, the group that's, that's preaching Christ out of love, the group that's preaching Christ out of rivalry. Then he talks about the group that's preaching uh, Christ uh, out of rivalry again, and then the group that's preaching out of love. That literary form, it's as though Paul is saying, look, I am rejoicing in this. I know that sounds ludicrous to you guys. I'm very, very, very aware of the pain it's causing me to see these people ripping away my authority and influence on others while they're still preaching Christ. That's the center of this text. These competitors are at the center of this text literarily. So what I'm saying here is this. Paul is emphasizing the pain, not ignoring it, while reinterpreting it. He's emphasizing the pain while reinterpreting it. Tish Harrison Warner has written a book called Prayer in the Night. She talks about in one year losing her father and losing two children through miscarriages uh, in a pretty brutal way that she lost them. And she said that she, the only thing that got her through it were certain practices. And for her, it was particularly reading a prayer book where sometimes all she could do was just deny all of her emotions and read this prayer book over the pain of her soul. And one line she says in there really caught my attention. We need practices that don't simply gloss over our fears, our pain, but that teach us to walk with God in the crucible of our own fragility. We're very fragile beings. And we desperately need these practices to keep our souls from running away from us. And this is a practice here. Learn to look for the way that God is advancing his kingdom. Now, one last question. Last week we looked at verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. Or another translation is. So that you may, uh, you may constantly choose over and over again what really matters. You can't reinterpret your circumstances in Christ if Christ doesn't matter most? And that's the haunting question. Our love, as I said last week, 
We love things, and our love needs a guidance system. It needs theology to guide it. Otherwise, what will happen is we will aim it at something less than excellent. We will aim it at something less than God. And even good things in life can become evil things when they become ultimate things. When good things become ultimate things and replace God, they can become evil things. You need your love guided by theology. Otherwise, it will go astray. And by the way, just a commercial. This Magnify conference coming up in our own backyard here the first weekend of December has one of the best international theologians in the world visiting us. Uh, He's worth your time. Um, So I want you to notice, too, one last thing. The gospel didn't make progress in spite of adversity, but adversity itself advanced the gospel. So how might the very unwanted misery that's not a good thing actually be an advantage to the gospel and proclaiming Christ? How might what looks so bad in your life and is bad in your life actually wind up serving what is so right in life? Over and over again, the Bible provides examples of this. Interpreting the unwanted, interpreting the unwanted by the excellent. Uh, Becca read for us a passage today in the prophet Habakkuk. And where the, the, he's crying to God, Lord, where are you? Do you not realize that among your own people, everything's falling apart? And then the Lord finally answers him and says, Habakkuk, I am right here. I'm, I am doing something about it. I can just imagine Habakkuk thinking, thankfully. Okay, that's what I've been waiting for. Oh, no, hold on, Habakkuk. If you read the rest of it here, I'm going to raise up the worst nation on the planet to serve me and discipline you guys. Can you say that again, Lord? That's why he says Habakkuk in in verse 5 of chapter 1, I'm doing something that you wouldn't believe even if I tell you. What I'm going to tell you, what I'm doing makes no sense at all. It even seems contrary to my very character. But somehow, through this conversation with the Lord, he gets to chapter 3 and says the, what, you, what you read Becca read there. <clears throat> it doesn't even matter, he says. He, and, and by the way, this is one of those real things when he, when he says this. Um, verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. When I think about what the Lord's going to do, it makes me tremble. But listen carefully. My legs tremble beneath me. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. You have to read that real slowly to get it. The people, this horrible nation is going to invade us. But you know what he's saying? He's not waiting for their invasion. He's waiting for the end of their invasion when God will get the invaders. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who are invading us. And therefore, I can rejoice because I can be content right now because I'm anticipating not this, but that, and it's going to make this make sense and redeem it. Do you get what I'm saying there? You follow? So it doesn't matter if the fig tree won't blossom, the fruit not be on the vine, etc. 
I will still find my joy in the God of my salvation, who winds up being my strength and makes me my feet like hinds feet so I can walk on high places. It's an amazing story. But it's not just from the Bible, it's also from your own family history. And since I diverted it with history, I'll end with family history. <clears throat> it's a story, whether it's the story of Alexander the Great and his wreckage all across the known civilized world at the time before Jesus came along. All that Alexander the Great did paved the way for one of the fastest expansions of Christianity, uh, if, if it hadn't been for that. It's, it's a story about Patrick, you know, March 17th. Uh, it's a story about this strange guy who brought Christianity to Ireland who wasn't even Irish himself, but was British. And he only got there because the French kidnapped him. So all these strange things. It's a story of Raymond Lowell, who in the 1200s, uh, the same time Marco Polo was discovering Asia, not becoming an app. Um, at the same time that that was happening, Raymond Lowell uh, was actually having the audacity to take the gospel to the most hated people in all of Europe, the Muslims. For hundreds and hundreds of years, there was nothing but pure hostility between Christians and Muslims, and Raymond Lowell broke that cycle. But there's also the story of a, <clears throat> an interesting woman who <clears throat> excuse me, got married to someone uh, who then changed the whole world as we know it. Her name was Clotilda, probably a name you say to yourself every day when you wake up. Uh, it was at the end of the 500s, right around 493, that Clotilda was picked uh, by the king of the Franks, a guy named Clovis, to be his princess. Well, the, the Franks, the, this Germanic tribe that eventually gave the name to France, um, uh, that were invading in kind of all that northern part of Europe. Well, Clotilda happened to be a Christian, but you have to understand something at the time. There were two groups of Christians at that time existing. There were the uh, Orthodox, uh, believe the Trinitarians, I guess is a better way to say it, and the Arians. The Arians believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but that he was created and he was not equal with God. Let's make that crystal clear. So uh, those two versions of Christianity were in somewhat competition, to say the least. And the Arians were not Christians in the sense that they didn't believe in the true Jesus. So Clotilda was an Arian. She married this pagan, of a, uh, and the whole nation was, was very pagan, multiple deities. And she constantly tried to convert her husband, the king of the Franks. Meanwhile, the Roman Empire, Christianity, Trinitarian Christianity, was heavily associated with the Roman Empire. The emperors and Christians were in bed together. That's just how life was back then. It was falling apart as all of these other places, especially the Franks, were invading. The Roman Empire had been around forever, and it was falling apart. Well, this little Clotilda kept working on her husband. Well, he never converted from her influence, at least that we know of. But he was threatened in this huge military battle. And for some reason, Clotilda, he called out to the Christian God and converted. And, and on that Christmas day, about this was about six years after he married her, he baptized all 3,000 of his closest warriors, which meant that the whole rest of the nation had to follow suit. So the Franks became Christians overnight. But through a little thing of providence, it wasn't Arian Christianity that he grabbed hold of. It was Trinitarian Christianity. So when he invaded the Roman Empire, what survived wasn't the Roman Empire, but the Christians of the Roman Empire. 
eventually becoming the Holy Roman Empire. Those, there are thousands of those kinds of stories that should remind us again and again that we should look for how the big story is winning in every situation, even the most unexpected, even the most unwanted, even the most hard-to-accept situations. Here's a verse to think about, then I'm going to call the guys for communion to come up. Psalm 5, verse 3, I said this about a month ago. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I direct my prayer, and the two most important words in that whole psalm, in the morning I direct my prayer and watch. I'm expecting you to respond. And all I'm going to add today to that is when you're watching for God to always respond to your prayer, don't put him in a box. He's probably going to respond in ways that will surprise you and may be the last thing on earth that you want. Why don't you take a moment, think about what the Lord would have you say while the worship team and the men serving communion come forward. I'm going to pray for us in a second. Um, again, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, you are more than welcome to come and take of the bread and cup, and uh, we'll come down the center aisle, and we'll take it all together after everyone uh, has received. I'll lead us in that. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses um, 8 through 10, are something to add to this whole thing, a footnote. When Paul says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And then he tells why he reinterprets his circumstances in Christ. Here it is. We are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. All this suffering is just part of belonging to Jesus. But because of that, the life of Jesus is even more obvious in our bodies. And so, Father, we thank you for a way through even before a way out. Someday, we will be out of a world where our interpretations are misguided and our loves are misguided. But for now, you can aim our loves at the only thing that really matters and reinterpret our lives in that. As we come now, we come hungry for you and we leave watching for you in Jesus' name.